This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation uh, webinar. In fact, welcome to a week of Resolution Foundation webinars talking about uh, gaps between places uh, across Britain from the angle of uh, economics. We're not going to cover every gap across the country. Then, uh, today, we're focusing on incomes, how much we have to uh, consume, to save, to plan for the future, or to pay off our debts from the past. Uh, on Thursday, we're going to turn to productivity gaps. Um, across the country. These two things are heavily related. Lots of our income comes hopefully from uh, producing some output, but that is not, they're not the same thing. They move in very different ways and some areas can have low productivity, but high incomes and vice versa. Now, obviously the backdrop to this is a government whose core agenda is levelling up um, the country, who's put those issues up in lights, although I have to say public attitudes have also put them up in lights over the course of the last few um, decades. So understanding exactly what is going on with different ways of thinking about economic gaps across the country is really important. And that's what these two papers we're publishing this week are all about. So today, incomes. The, um, uh, now, to help us do that, first of all, you're going to hear from Charlie McCurdy, who is an economist at the Resolution Foundation, one of the authors of today's report, and he's going to give you a summary of those findings. Then you're going to hear from Sam Beckett, who is the second permanent secretary at the ONS, the, um, uh, and has done lots of jobs in the economic policy space before she went to run the, the like kingdom of nerds that is the ONS, in a very positive way. It's a safe space for nerds at the Resolution Foundation. Some of our best friends are nerds. And, we re and the queen of nerds being here is very exciting for uh, all of us. That was meant more positively than it sounded. They, that may not have gone well. Anyway, the, um, uh, but there's also lots of other people around the country doing important work in this area. And then we're going to hear from one of them, who is um, Dr. Elvis Nanzu, who is the research fellow at the Oxford Brooks Business uh, School and has done some very exciting work. If you haven't looked at the English Atlas of Inequality, you should have done, which is one of the projects that Elvis has uh, worked on. Now, as always, we'll then be taking your questions and on Slido and putting up some polls, and it is hashtag local incomes if you want to log on to that to ask any questions. So that is the plan for some morning. Uh, that is the plug for coming along on Thursday as well. But to kick us off, Charlie, what is in the report? Thanks. Um, there's quite a lot of nerdy stuff in the report, but thankfully I'm not going to go through in too much detail of that. Um, I want to say first thanks to Michael for Lindsay Judge. This has been uh, a, you know, quite a long project, lots of lots of work into it. Um, we clearly care quite a lot about spatial inequalities at Resolution Foundation. Um, as Torsten has sort of already said, uh, you know we're not the only ones. Politics, uh, central government cares a lot about gaps between places too, uh, and we can see that from uh, the levelling up strategy. And it's not just um, central government; it's also the public cares about gaps between places. Um, when asked about which inequality matters most, um, it tends to be uh, gaps between places that features highest uh, for the general public. Um, so I'm going to say a little bit about what we did um, and why we did it, um, not too much. Um, so what, what did we do? Um, we worked with a sort of relatively underused uh, data set um, that gives us uh, income uh, per capita. Um, for local authorities over the last 22 years. Um, and crucially, it gives us uh, not just a headline income measure, but also um, information on the subcomponents of income. 
The other thing we did, uh, which we spent quite a long, lot of time doing, uh, was develop a cash measure of income. Uh, and this sort of cash measure of income is a bit more similar to a, a more traditional uh, survey-based measure of income, so money in and out of the pockets of households. Um, why did we do this? Um, you know, for sort of lots of the reasons um, that I've already given in terms of why there's so much uh, motivation and interest in this area. Uh, we need a good understanding of how big spatial income gaps are and how they've changed over time if we want to be serious about the country's future economic strategy. So what did we find out? Um, I think the sort of first headline thing to say, maybe perhaps unsurprising, is that there are just these really big gaps uh, in income between uh, different parts of the country. And here we focus on local authorities. Um, so if you look at the uh, income per head in the richest local authority, Kensington and Chelsea, um, it's about four and a half times uh, the poorest in uh, Nottingham. And I think the other thing worth saying that this, this sort of chart shows is that there's big gaps within regions too. And you can see that in London, Southeast uh, and the East, the gaps within regions are much bigger than, for example, the Northeast, where, where average incomes tend to be much more similar. So not only are there big gaps between places, but probably um, more importantly, these gaps are, are highly persistent over time. And so if you plot local authority incomes uh, in 1997, which is on the x-axis, uh, against local authority incomes in 2019, you can see that there's a strong uh, a relationship between the two. And what that basically means is that those places that were poor in 1997 have tended to remain poor, um, and those places that were rich have stayed rich. Um, there's some sort of uh, outliers here and some exceptions in terms of some places that have overperformed relative to where they were in 1997. You can see Newham, Hackney and Lewisham sort of stand out, and then there's some places that have underperformed relative to where they were in 1997. And these are the likes of Nottingham, Leicester, Blackburn, Bradford, uh, interestingly, all places with um, industrial histories. So we've got big gaps. Um, they're highly persistent over time. Um, I think one of the sort of beauties of, of the data set that um, we've worked with is that it allows us to look at the subcomponents of income and how these, these vary by place uh, over time. And we can see that if we look at um, spatial disparities in, in wages and salaries, there hasn't actually been very much change over time. And you might be thinking, okay, this sounds somewhat um, inconsistent with what we know about um, spatial disparities in the labour market, because it's definitely true to say that gaps on pay and employment have in fact narrowed. But if we look at the places that have seen employment grow fastest over the sort of last um, two decades or so, it's those places that tend to be higher paid. And the kind of net result is that we get this flatlining of uh, spatial disparities on wages and salaries. Uh, so not much change um, on uh, wages and salaries across the country, um, but where have we seen actually quite big change? And I think the first thing to say is that if we look at self-employment income across the country, self-employment income has become much more unequally distributed over time. If we look at some of those specific places that are kind of, you know, might be driving this trend, it's basically where there's been big change is in London. So lots of London boroughs have both high levels of self-employment income and they've seen lots of change uh, over time. And so one part of this story is definitely that self-employment in terms of numbers has increased a lot in the capital, um, but that's not the whole story. Um, so if we plot the change in self-employed household income um, by household income decile, and we compare the UK and London, so we know London is driving definitely some of this trend, we can see that there's been a big um, change at the top end of the income distribution. 
So there's a big, big rise in self-employment income in the capital, which is being driven by the top end of the income distribution. Just like self-employment income, if we instead look at disparities in terms of investment, so that's uh, investment income, things from uh, dividends, uh, interest, uh, etc., we can see that spatial disparities in investment are large and rising too. And just like um, self-employment income, if we look at those places that have seen um, a big rise in the amount of self-employment income, again, London stands out. So you can see London boroughs like Camden, Westminster have seen investment income surge over the last 22 years. And if we square this with what we know is going on at the top end of the income distribution, so we know there's been a big increase in the number of um, individuals uh, who are very, very high income. They also tend to be concentrated in London and the South East and get much more of their income from self-employment and from investment income. So this story on self-employment and on investment is very much a story of the top end of the income distribution. The final income source that we, that we look at and see how it's changed over time in terms of spatial disparities um, is uh, benefits and private pensions. So that's the... Um, uh, red line uh, on the chart in front of you um, and we can see there's been not very much change over time. Um, unfortunately, the data set doesn't allow us to disentangle the two, but from other work that we've done and we can look at other data sets, we can see that there is a bit more nuance to this story. So starting with uh, private pensions, uh, we've done work which has shown that the country has grown apart by average age, which will mean that pensionable income will be much more important in some parts of the country relative to other parts. And we also know that the benefit system supports many households in the richest areas, you know, through propping up uh, high housing costs, as well as some of the poorest areas through more traditional um, out-of-work support. Um, so what we can do is we can think about this in the whole and we can look at the absolute contribution to local authority inequality from all of these different sources of income. And what the chart shows is that employment income still clearly contributes the most to income inequality. And this is probably perhaps unsurprising if we consider that employment income is the largest source of income for most people. Um, and if we look at what's changed over time, there hasn't actually been a huge amount of change in terms of the absolute contribution to inequality from employment income. What has changed is that investment income's contribution to income inequality has actually doubled over the last 22 years. So again, this is the story of uh, change at the top end of the income distribution. Before um, concluding, I think it's, it's worth saying that we also care about uh, gaps within areas too. Um, and Elvis has taught and said have done some really great work on this and I'm sure he'll pick it up in, in the discussion. Um, the chart in front of you shows the income distribution within local authorities um, ranked by median income. I think there's sort of two important points to draw from it. The first of which being that there are just these really big gaps within local authorities. And the second, that being a top-end uh, uh, income individual is very different um, in some local authorities than others, and whereas if you look at the bottom end of the in income distribution, there's not much difference. Um, and finally, just some concluding remarks. Um, the public cares a lot about um, spatial disparities. We've basically shown that they're sort of right to do so. These spatial disparities are large and highly persistent over time. Um, and we've got a few sort of uh, considerations for policymakers if they want to be serious about uh, tackling spatial disparities. Uh, the first of which is we need more um, action to close labour market gaps. 
we'll be speaking about this in more detail on Thursday's event. Uh, the second is uh, don't forget about what happens outside the labour market, so thinking particularly about uh, you know, things like pensionable income and, and self-employment income. Uh, and the third, if we want to be serious about closing gaps, um, this basically means focusing on the top end of the income distribution. Uh, I'm going to leave it at that and I look forward to chatting this through in the, in the Q&A. Great, thank you very much, Charlie. Um, sitting behind that snappy summary is a lot of data work over the last year, so well done to Charlie and team. Thank you to the um, uh, collaborators at London School of Economics who have done a lot of this work. In fact, as part of this whole project we're doing on the future of the UK economy, funded by the Nuffield Foundation, so I should say thank you to them. So, Sam, you can sit Sam, whatever you prefer. Thank you. So the first thing to say is that I'm really delighted to be here. As Torsten said, I am Deputy CEO at the Office for National Statistics and deeply um, interested in what we can do as a statistical institute to bring the evidence base together to help on this perennial topic. It is a perennial topic, um, but I think it does have uh, renewed uh, focus and resonance at the moment um, with the policy focus on levelling up and the, and the promise and ambition in that, um, but also the cost of living debate, which of course has been prompted by the impacts of COVID and the Russia-Ukraine crisis. So it's a great opportunity to come and talk a little bit about, about the work the Office for National Statistics is doing and how it bears on this important uh, contribution. Uh, the three things I want to talk about really. First and probably most directly uh, today is the transformation that we're kicking off of our household uh, financial statistics. Uh, second, we want to talk a bit about the, the government statistical service uh, subnational data strategy and its link, of course, across to um, the levelling up uh, work. And finally, a word on our inclusive data task force, which takes us back to the hard to capture uh, groups. But I'll say a bit more about that uh, towards the end. So I hope, hopefully, by outlining what we're up to, it's an opportunity to engage with the interested uh, user and uh, researcher um, in this area, because we are always open uh, to challenge and contribution and questions uh, from you all. So I think it, kicking off with an acceptance of some of the challenges here, which are highlighted in everything that Charlie had to do to get that, that data set into a shape where he could interrogate it for um, this, this, this question. And there are a lot of theoretical uh, challenges. You know, the concept of what you think of as household income isn't as straightforward as you might uh, think. Do you just want labour income? Uh, do you want the impact of benefits of taxes in there? Um, you know, are you interested in, um, in investment income? And I think that work to the, the Resolution Foundation have done to try and separate those out those income sources is a really uh, a brilliant line of inquiry and uh, we'll be certainly going back and um, exploring um, that more. And then there is the VEX question which is kind of posed by the paper about how to how to think about housing costs and imputed rent and so on in, in that question. I mean, another problem in this area is just the embarrassment of riches, if I can put it like that, in terms of uh, the statistical series that are out there. The ONS, we publish um, at least four series that kind of merit on the question of uh, uh, in income inequality, uh, incomes over time and, and poverty. And DWP and HMRC have got uh, theirs as well. 
So, and they're derived from different sources. So, of course, we talked a bit about the survey, um, um, the survey suite that are out there. We've got our household uh, finances survey in the ONS, um, DWP's family resources survey is another um, you know, headline one, um, but there's many more. And of course, it's not just the survey uh, information that is interesting here, but admin data, which is getting uh, more and more accessible on uh, PAYE, employment income, uh, and also uh, benefits as well. So, you know, there's a huge amount going on in this space with um, more and more data becoming available, but not necessarily more insight, if I can um, put it like that. Methodologically, challenges there. We've got modelled estimates that are from top down, direct measurement, you know, different ways of thinking about the uh, unit of geography, different definitions of households, and so on. And even though we've got all of that, there's still gaps and groups that we know are underrepresented. And I know Resolution Foundation has done some work on that in respect to uh, benefits as well. So it makes it very challenging to tell a coherent story, even assuming that the data that you're looking at is good and true. Uh, you need a sophisticated uh, concept of the, your exam question when you're choosing um, the data set. And I think all this was highlighted in a review that the Office for Statistical Regulation uh, did uh, a year or two ago, when it highlighted how difficult it was to navigate um, this landscape. We've taken some short-term steps to improve that. Uh, we've published an income and earnings coherence work plan and we're working through that. And then in March this year, uh, an updated guide to income and earnings statistics, which I think would be very helpful and is pretty user-friendly in getting your head around um, all this stuff. But I think what the Resolution Foundation work is, is also highlighting, it's not even as simple as that. You know, even if you try and get these data sets to match up, they can tell, um, they can tell a slightly conflicting uh, story, and that's so difficult in this important uh, uh, policy area, and one of huge public interest, as, as Torsten has um, said. So, we're all about trying to produce statistics for the public good, so we are trying to tackle these issues. And I just want to touch on uh, three things that um, we're working on and would be good to engage with you all on. The first, and most directly here, I think, is the transformation of our household uh, finances. Uh, statistics. Now our aim is to get a micro data set which will be able to bring together the individual level and the national income uh, derived estimates and try and use a consistent uh, data set to give consistent outcomes. We're going to look at the sample design of the household finances survey and see if we can better capture those at the top and the bottom of the income distribution which as, as Charlie was saying is, is so uh, key. Um, and you know, we, we, it's not just about the surveys, we've got to match and link those with um, a growing wealth of administrative uh, data too. So that's, that's all for the future, but as part of that, we're already engaging extensively with stakeholders, including Resolution Foundation, about how we can uh, achieve, achieve this. The research we've seen today is a key um, contribution. We'll want to go back and um, have a look at those results and uh, whether our, our statistics um, can merit upon it further. We're holding workshops at the moment. We've got invitations out there for um, users to come and give us feedback. And later in the year, we're going to have the full public consultation. That'll kick off in October. So watch out for that. But if you're absolutely itching to engage with the Office for National Statistics, and who wouldn't, you can also email us at hfst.engagement at ons.gov.uk, but you'll find it 
on the website too. So a quick word then on uh, GSS subnational statistics strategy and um, levelling up. Now we did a lot of work published um, last December about um, how across the government statistical service, not just in the ONS, we could bring together a framework that would guide uh, use of um, uh, subnational statistics and how we ought to think about uh, different uh, geographical uh, splits of data to provide some coherence and give guidance on quality, etc. Work plan was published um, uh, about a month ago and we are uh, working through that intensively. But it also underpinned what you'll see in the uh, levelling up uh, white paper, particularly the technical an annex. Now, how often in life is the technical annex an easier read than the document itself? But I think levelling up, well, levelling up has cracked that one and that's delightful because it's quite a small volume and a huge compendium of the metrics and statistics that merit on these important uh, questions. So I really recommend uh, that one uh, to you. And two points I'd make. First, um, it goes well beyond income, income uh, growth and uh, uh, disparities, and right into health, education, well-being. You know, it's first and foremost um, uh, place-based, but there's a lot of people-based stuff in there as well, uh, pay, employment, skills and so on, as well as crime, travel to work, times, broadband coverage, you name it, it's in there. It's a fascinating uh, uh, document and we're going to be pulling together all that data, uh, which is about the transparency of the government's policy in this area. So that's an important role for us. But it also identifies gaps where it admits more work is, is needed. Particular ones, I think, that are really interesting, quality of work, um, relationship between work and health, pride in place and well-being, um, training outcomes and the local leadership uh, factor. So all things where even that huge uh, wealth of uh, metrics and data um, admits to those important gaps. Third and final area is the inclusive data task force. Now our ambition at the Office for National Statistics is to uh, uh, be inclusive by design in all our data collection. Everyone counts and is counted is our, is our mantra. So this work is really trying to get at those hard to reach uh, groups such as the non-household uh, population. But it's also looking at a qualitative experience of hard to reach groups. So over the next few months, we'll be publishing research into disabled adults, access to services, uh, uh, goods and activities, the school experience of children with special needs and disabilities, uh, the priorities and needs of gypsy and traveller communities and much more. So watch out for some of that coming up in the next few months. So just to finish off, incredibly important topic, great work and a great contribution to the debate, a very challenging on the statistical uh, side, but there's lots of work going on at the ONS, so do get in touch and engage with us and watch out for the public consultation too. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Sam. Now, the, the point of producing all those statistics is obviously partly to keep everyone on the ONS in work, which is very important, but it's also so people can use it. Use it. Yeah. Oh, what will they find if they use it? Yeah, I mean, thanks you. Thank you very much, Charlie and Lindsay, for coming together and putting out this uh, report. And I think it's one of the uh, best ones I've seen when it comes to income analysis. It's extremely difficult to do uh, income analysis research uh, in this country. And I'm glad um, Sam has shed some light on some work that you're doing in this area to help uh, those of us who are interested in 
uh, understanding more about uh, how income inequality actually pans out in the country. Most of the time, we all seem to think we have an idea of where the disparities are, where the gaps are, which areas are the high income earners, which areas are the low income earners. But when you do the research, you take a closer look at it, then you tend to see the nuances and uh, the what I call the hidden deprivation and poverty within affluent areas and how then we can begin to have discussions about how we address uh, those. So thanks uh, Charlie, uh, this is great. Uh, a couple of things I just like to pick up on and I think the main uh, theme here is that uh, nothing has changed very much when it comes to income disparity across the country within the last 22 years that they've looked at. And that sort of outlines the nature of the challenge facing this country as we embark on this renewed effort of leveling up this country. I mean, a lot has been thrown at inequality for the past few decades, uh, different types of uh, place-based policies, people-based uh, policies, and according to this, obviously we haven't actually seen much change. So. We need to have the discussions around what are we going to do differently uh, in this renewed effort to level up the country? Uh, what are we, how are we going to do it? How is policy going to address uh, the issues differently to what has been done previously? So that uh, come 10, 20 years time, another group of people will not be sitting here saying that, well, nothing has changed again, and then we are all back to square one. So that's one of the uh, uh, points I want to raise. Uh, another aspect that uh, I think we need to have discussions about is, in as much as it's good to, we are thinking of leveling up uh, across the country, between regions and between local authority areas, as I did say earlier on, we need to also think about how we are going to actually level up within uh, these regions and within these local authority areas. I mean, you look at the headline figure and Kensington and Chelsea is the richest local authority, right? But if you look at the indices of deprivation in 2019, income domain, about 25% of LSO in Kensington and Chelsea are actually in the most deprived decile. So if you look at that, there's a lot of people in Kensington and Chelsea and other uh, presumably affluent areas who are also deprived. And we need to find ways of, of at least having the discussions around how do we level up within those areas as well? And how do we actually make sure that as we level up uh, other parts of the country, the North and the Midlands, how do we make sure that we don't create similar situations in Kansas City and Chelsea where other people get left behind? Um, one of the slides that Charlie presented showed that um, self-employment opportunities are being picked up mostly by people in the high income households. So uh, how do we make sure that people who are in the lower income households and the middle income households also take advantages of some of these opportunities that Leveling Up is proposing to uh, sort of roll out in some of these areas? Um, so these are some of the things that I think we need to sort of open uh, the discussion on and have as we try to renew this uh, interest in flattening the country. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Elvis. We are definitely not... <coughs>
we haven't booked in the one in two decades time, but I'm hoping when we do it, we won't be showing the same charts uh, again, because otherwise life will be, it'll be depressing for the uh, nation and pretty depressing for the researchers doing the work too. So that is not what we are about. Right, as I said at the beginning, questions you can ask, put them in on Slido, hashtag local incomes, there's lots coming in. The, um, uh, and we're going to do the first poll on there now, if I can make this work. Right, which is getting at some of this, uh, one of the questions actually raises this as well, which is basically, uh, you guys are going to have to like ruin your necks to notice this, but basically you can see very clearly high proportions of people being raising issues about economic inequality, right? It's one of the forms of inequality that comes highest on public or, uh, anxieties or wishing to see fixed. But there are lots of different kinds of economic inequality. The, um, uh, and so this is just saying, what do you think, from, from on the lens of geography, so not in general for the country, but the lens of geography, which of these do you think is actually most important? Wealth, income, productivity, i.e. output, employment, i.e. the like, level of um, how many people are working in the area, or uh, house prices, which is the one that gets probably, if we took a long view of 30 years, is the one that gets all the media coverage, even if in the last few years we focused on uh, some other ones. So while you're all voting on that, let's start the conversation. I think we should start, in honour of Sam, on data, uh, and then we're going to come to the country uh, after, because obviously the point of good data is to let us find out something about the country. So Charlie, the first question for you uh, here, some of these are going to be techie, just to warn you everybody, sometimes <coughs> life is hard. We have to push through it, okay? Right, so the, um, so someone's asking here, Charlie, can you justify using the data set we do, which is the incomes part of the national accounts, um, given that household incomes within it includes things like charities and universities, not just households, uh, and um, includes all benefits, including those that are offsetting higher costs, for example, on housing. So let's just explain a bit about yeah. what we've done with the data set to get around those challenges that are real, but we think this is the reason this is new. I know you're all very excited about this stuff, people, but this is really exciting because this, there's, no one has done this before and that's because it is a pain in the bum. Okay, so Charlie, what did you do? Um, well, it's actually worth saying that the, the ONS did do a cash measure of uh, national accounts income. So it has sort of been done, but it's kind of one of those things that's like slightly buried. Um, yeah, so what, what did we do? Well, the, I guess the, the two things that we looked at for in the first instance were the households below average income data set, which is our sort of gold standard on uh, a measure of income that, like you know, feels quite tangible for most people, money and out of the pockets. Um, I mean, yeah, it's definitely important that we like do try and like get to a point where we, we are happy with the concept of, of income, uh, and we sort of compared and contrasted the um, GDHI gross disposable household income data set, which is derived from the national accounts, with this uh, HBAI data set. And, and we went basically through a process of looking at all of the different subcomponents of income and seeing how they sort of compared and contrasted. And if you look at actually what goes into um, the GDHI data set, there's just so, so much more than, than in the households below average income. And so the households below average income data set is survey-based. Um, you know, you look at like the lines for like self-employment income for London or South East compared to GDHI, and there's just like this sort of crazy things that emerge where it's like, you know, over two years in London, uh, there was actually like a fall in self-employment income, which is like, we just know that just like isn't, isn't true. Um, so what goes into the GDHI data set, there's a load of admin-based stuff. Um, there is also some survey stuff as well. And we sort of, yeah, compared and contrasted the two and basically came to the point of view of this is, this is definitely fit for purpose. Very good. Hopefully that convinced you on the question. Sam, just to go on this on, so we've been talking about the issue of, um, 
regional inequalities at least um, well at least since the 1990s in reality much longer but in terms of this like phase of public policy focus do you think we are getting better at the, the data as in you've talked about some of the things you're doing in future but you can there is more this data is being used more broadly yeah. do you think we're getting better or are we just like floundering around I think we're getting better I guess I, I guess I would say that but I would say you know there's still a long distance to travel I mean what we have to do is try and harness some of the more innovative data sources that we've got. So, you know, surveys are great. They can get at questions that you can't really get um, from uh, admin data, um, sort of, you know, opinions and, and a richness of people's lived experience and their personal characteristics, etc. So I think surveys are an incredibly important part of this story. But now there's so much more admin data that we can wrangle and bring it into shape to, to bring um, more insight into um, these sorts of uh, policy questions. And we're working hard with our colleagues at DWP and HMRC, who are fantastic, both fantastic sources of uh, data of that nature. So the, the, and then the game is to try and bring the two together. So, um, you know, that's what the, the, the Household Financial Statistics Transformation Project is all about. But, you know, it's, it's also, um, you know, going on all the time in the data that we provide um, for uh, researchers, including in a secure way, um, if the data is very granular and, and can actually, uh, you know, run you risks about uh, privacy, etc. So, really interesting time. It's got to be better, um, but long road to travel still, I think. So if nothing else, public concern plus government focusing on the area should give us better stats, even if it doesn't close gaps across the country. So, I think, know. yes. Yeah, but we're, we're, there, we're there to provide the evidence, I think. Uh, that's definitely your part of the uh, good. Uh, well, what's your experience? So, as you say, one of the USPs of the work you've done is um, lots of us come at this from a national, regional or local area, but spend less time looking at what's going on within Eastbourne. We look at yeah. Eastbourne. The, um, how, how have you found doing that work in terms of, I mean, make some very pretty charts and maps. Yeah. Uh, but how, how, what, how, what was the experience of actually doing that work? I think um, it, there are so many ways of uh, measuring uh, in income inequality. Um, do you basically add in housing costs? Do you take out housing costs? Do you adjust for housing costs and that sort of thing? Do you take in benefits data? Um, and that sort of, there are so many things that you have to first of all think of. And then there are also questions about how granular the data set itself is, which to some extent, uh, I don't actually blame the owners for this because th there are That's issues good, around. It would get awkward. No, there are issues around um, ethics and because uh, yeah. and that sort of thing and dealing with knowing how to deal with people's income and that sort of thing. So, uh, but in general, I suppose yeah, we need to have more reliable sort of data sets. I think that's what everybody else wants data sets that. Uh, we cannot convincingly say that this is actually measuring how much people have in their pockets or how much they should be having in their pockets and how we can compare that nationally. Yeah. I mean, there's some things, one thing that I've taken away from this experience of doing this work, comparing across what the National Accounts data is telling us with what the household service is that we, like, we just should be, ner so we, in general we prefer, we traditionally preferred household service because they let us see the distribution, right? You can see middle, poor, top. Right, rather than just seeing the average, which is mainly what we get, not entirely, but mainly what we get out of the national accounts approach. But as Charlie says, the gap that you're seeing in uh, 
how much investment income and how much self-employment income we can see in the surveys versus how much the national council telling us exists should make us worried yeah. that we're not doing a good job um, at the top in those surveys. And that is given that, as we showed you, it's the top where the differences between places are really happening yeah. is a big uh, problem for us. Right, let's bring out the results of the poll, and then I promise you we're not going to just talk about data, although I reckon we'll come back to it as we go. So, what did you all think? Here we go. What does democracy tell us? Wealth. Well, there you go. Well, you know, we're not producing a report on wealth, guys, so that's a bit awkward. Uh, no, look, um, that is definitely true. And one thing, there is actually a question on from one of you online about whether the gaps, here we go, from James. Here we go. Hopefully it will appear on the screen. How does wealth inequality fit into this picture? And that is a very good question because there's wealth matters in of itself, right? It gives you, it does in the long term give you purchasing power. It changes um, your ability to live a life over your whole lifespan. It also actually changes things about how your country fits together. If you get spreading of wealth gaps, it makes it harder to move between parts of the country. We're definitely seeing that over the course of the last 20 years. Charlie, do you want to give us a views on wealth inequality well I, from a geographical perspective also we've got lots of views <laughs> on the wider question um i guess there's two things like lots of what we've done in the past has been at a regional level and we know that like a kind of more like traditional concepts of wealth like wealth gaps has definitely risen uh and we do we sort of get a little bit into this uh within the paper i guess talking about house prices um which is yeah it's a bit of a kind of thorny complicated thing as Sam kind of alluded to earlier in terms of like what does this do to, to regional gaps and like I guess what we ha what we do show in the paper is that uh, in high income areas house prices have actually risen by much much more so in that would that would basically close close regional gaps in that sense so yeah I think well we've made we've made some people in richer places poorer yeah excellent keep it up us <coughs> they, um, so on this on so on wealth, this is a chance to give you a plug for asking for more cash from the Treasury or others. So the Wealth and Asset Survey is our main source of income on wealth, uh, on the data on wealth. Um, it gives us regional stuff, but it doesn't let us go below that, really. Um, we can get a bit below if we like, merge a lot of years, but we basically can't. Uh, should we? What's our answer to detailed wealth, do you reckon? And we've, got local, we've got house price data at local authority level, obviously. Yeah, we have. And I think, you know, I think that's why... The, the work this morning is so interesting. When you look at the in investment income and how that's becoming more unequal than employment income, um, and this question about how to think about um, housing wealth um, is, is so interesting. No, of course, you know, it's another area where um, we should probably, uh, you know, focus, focus uh, more effort, but there's, you know, one has to prioritise. I've heard rumours. So, so I think uh, we are we're 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 very focused on this household financial uh, statistics transformation. But I'm sure, as part of that, we will want to kind of understand how uh, wealth would feed into that. that There's a long-term plan to bring the wealth asset survey in with the other the income surveys. Um, what mammoth survey of everything then? Well, I think I think. Um, I think that might be several several steps ahead okay, of where we well, are now. We at the moment, I think you know our household financial uh, uh, um, household finances survey is already a meld of two other surveys. Yep. So you know we do need to do quite a lot of okay. um, you know uh, get get have a strategic and long term okay. path. But um, you know surveys take a long time to build, um, and uh, we we are looking also how we can um, you know, use some of the admin data yeah. to take the weight off surveys in, in some respects. 
Very good. Okay. Data like life is a long game, people. The, um, right. Okay. Let's do this question that's come up. Let's move on to some substance questions about how to think about what this data is telling us about the country. Okay. So Charlie set out earlier that there's a number of things going on here, which is if we look just, we didn't show you the charts, but if we just showed you variation in wages, okay, or just showed you variation in employment, they're both falling. Okay, so gaps on wa wages and gaps on employment have been coming down over time. That's the good news. It's good to have some good news, right? Some things are changing. Those things have both come down. It's just that when you put the two together, because some of the um, improvements in employment are in amongst, they're in lower employment areas, but they are in the higher earning bits, ones of the lower employment earners. Does that make sense? There's some nodding in the room. They haven't been bribed. I'm taking that as a yes. So, that is, so that's why overall you don't see the wages and salary line falling. But we shouldn't ignore the good news. The government should be happy about the minimum wage is definitely driving down gaps on wages. And we should be happy about high employment in the last decade because that definitely, like South Yorkshire, Merseyside, saw big rises in employment because they were low employment areas to start with. But overall, we're not seeing the numbers come down. And that's partly because, as James has got a great question here again, going to move on to, uh, here we go. So saying, look, if inequality is being pushed up by investment income at the top, doesn't that mean that income gaps for everyone else are falling? In brackets, no, James, but it means they're not going up. Um, so should we care, basically? If what's happening is just that the top, right, is becoming the rich people in London are richer than the rich people in Leeds, but everybody else, the gaps aren't getting much worse, should we just all chillax about, uh, I'm slightly paraphrasing James's question, but should we chillax about... Um, regional gaps because you know it's all okay now the um oh it's obviously no right because it change over time isn't all that matters the level the absolute levels matter and the levels are high there and secondly if you get ever growing gaps between other sources of income over time those will feed into lasting uh, changes we just touched on wealth where it will feed in but you will get all kinds of other um changes building but anyway what do you reckon Elvis? should we care if it's just the top two i think i think i think there are <laughs> Is, there are questions about the, the absolute minimum. I mean, yes, rich people are getting richer. Uh, poor people, well, those deprived people, not rich people, are where they are. But when rich people are getting richer and people are actually struggling to get above uh, the, the sort of living standards that people expect in this country, then it becomes a problem. If rich people were getting richer and the average person or the poor person was still above the minimum living standards, we could say, well, it doesn't matter, we don't care about it. But we find ourselves in a situation where people are still struggling to uh, go above the threshold. So it is a problem. One thing, so one thing that we spend quite a lot of time to think about is, so if you look at when people started getting anxious about it in economic inequality, right? Yeah. Public attitudes to it, they basically shoot up after the financial crisis. Yeah. But inequality itself doesn't go up after the financial crisis. Inequality is broadly the same. Inequality all went up in the 1980s and the early 1990s. So it's the combination of stagnation and growth, weak income growth for most people, hitting into means, means people become less satisfied with high levels of inequality broadly. We'll be saying a bit more about this in a few weeks' time, but I think that is worth thinking about. The, the actual political economy of how it feels is different if really? nobody's getting much richer, basically, than yeah. if you're... Plus, it, having a high inequality level that lasts for long periods of time is different to having one that exists for it's one year, sure. basically. I don't mind being poorer than my neighbour <laughs> for one year, but once it's been going on for 20, I start to think someone should get, you know, get on with the taxing of this uh, stuff. What do you reckon, Sam? Should we, should we care? I mean, I was saying earlier, investment income 
and self-employment income are the bits <coughs> that look like they may be underdone in our household surveys. Should we care about this stuff or should we think it's all about wages and salaries because that is what most people just have. Most, the typical worker, all their income is coming from wages and salaries. So. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a sort of um, moral philosophy question, really, isn't it? About, oh, well, well, it, about, you know, are you more worried about the sort of social safety net yeah. or um, equal, equality, reducing inequality for its own sake? Um, and, of course, um, you know, unless one can, you know, redistribute um, this wealth, you have to worry about both these things, uh, don't you? So, um, you know, that's, that's a kind of tricky one. One thing, though, that I thought was really interesting in the paper was this question about self-employment. Because, of course, what we've seen over the pandemic is a big, a big decrease in the number of self-employed people by, you know, a few hundred of thousands, hundreds of thousands. And... It, you know, is that a change in the working model that's been, you know, brought on by uh, people uh, retiring early? You know, is it a sort of a response to changes on uh, policy things like the IR35? And 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 I think to remind I, everyone what IR35 is. That, not everyone that, is as sad as us. That's um, <laughs> that's the the, ta the tax rules if you declare yourself as kind of one person company to work for another company. Um, and those rules have been tightened up. So that's a disincentive to classify yourself as being self-employed. You're more likely to be an employee. But, you know, it's, it's trends like that. For good that. reasons, by the way, because if pay your tax people. If you weren't pay, if you're paying too little tax as a self-employed, it's time to cough up. That is what it's about. <laughs> so so um, I think these, these are questions where we think post-pandemic, what might the difference be in the labour market? Has there been a structural yep. change there? Um, and I think also, although it's quite far from the question that Charlie's tackling, is um, whether the phenomenon of being able to work from home will actually enable people to, uh, you know, take, have effectively larger travel to work areas. It could have impacts on um, housing market and inequality uh, regionally as well. So, you know, there's lots in the data at the moment that's quite interesting in that regard. And Charlie, we should say, shouldn't we, that this data, to avoid getting into this, what's the pandemic, this is about the long-term trends. Yeah. Yeah. We've yeah. tried to stay out of some of the short, not least because a lot of it's very uncertain, like you say. Like on the self-employment, you have seen this big fall. How that plays out is a very long, we, I feel less. So did anyone want to add on that? Was it, the bits we were worried about were self-employment, definitely, you've got changes going on. Um, I think that is the main issue. We don't know what's happened, actually. We're less certain on the level of investment income as well in the short term. I mean, that's worth us paying. The data only takes us in up to 2019 anyway, so we couldn't do anything if we wanted to. We'll do that again, Sam. We'll come back and do the chart on that in a, in a few years' time when we've worked out what's going on um, a bit more. Right, now, there's a few questions. So one for you, Charlie, here, which is a few people asking on prices. So obviously, we care about prices to determine what real incomes look like. The question is basically saying, should we not use national price data, but instead uh, regional price data? The, um, uh, because otherwise we'll be underestimating the cost divergence over um, over time. Now, we should think about this really carefully between there's there's distinction between higher regional price levels in some places. That doesn't automatically mean higher inflation, higher rates of change in those price levels over time. I think Jack upstairs has done a... Yeah. We've looked at re whether you're seeing a divergence in price, the, pri the rate of inflation across regions is not massive. Everyone's getting stuff, basically. It's not massively different. And I think if you look on average over long periods of time, we haven't seen much difference either. But you've definitely got a higher price level in, in London. Most of that shows up in housing costs. Should we, why, don't we, why don't we do housing costs since we raise it? So quite a lot of people, yeah. Charlie, are asking what's going on with housing costs here? How much are you taking into account? 
Um, uh, and then we should come, and then let's come on to the benefit side of it as well. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's quite complicated that like basically what housing cost does to uh, income inequality between different places. Um, one of the things that we do in the report, if you use house prices as a proxy for housing costs, we can see that house uh, prices have risen the most in uh, high income areas, so that will reduce gaps in inequality. Um, the other way of sort of looking at uh, house prices in, in this instance is thinking about um, imputed uh, rent, so the extra uh, implicit bit of income that homeowners will get from not having to pay rent. And if we include that in our income measure, this actually pushes up um, income inequality. So there's kind of like two different ways of thinking about it. Is it, is it a cost or is it actually some, an extra bit of income that, that high rent areas end up getting? Very good. Now, let's, let's, why don't we both do one of, you, one of each of you on um, rent here. So there's a question for you, Sam, which is basically, can we please have, oh, there is a way to make it work. Uh, here we go. Um, will the ONS be producing data on trends in the levels of local rents going further than the index of rents? I know this is what you'll uh, get out of bed for, but some of us care about this a lot. Can we have rent levels across the country? Which well, I can certainly take that back and, all right, good. That's and good. That's uh, all we can ask. Ha have a look at that. I mean, I, if I can, just a word on um, thinking about uh, prices and cost yes, of living. Yes. Because we've, do done, we've done quite a lot on that recently to try and get underneath those national average uh, statistics. So we looked at um, CPI, CPIH by um, income decile. We started publishing that because we'd stopped over the pandemic um, to prioritise other things. So we've started um, that up again. And actually, um, the, the, what it shows you is there is there are a lot of swings and roundabouts in the what people spend their money on in terms of inflation. So the poorest aren't so impacted by fuel, for example. Um, you petrol, know, you mean? Uh, car fuel. Car fuel, petrol fuel. Um, and so, you know, and they're eating out and hotels and things like that. So the baskets are, so, are different for the different income deciles, such that quite a lot of it actually comes out of the data and you don't see, I mean, there is some differential, but it's not what you'd expect kind of reading the newspapers. So we, we, we've published some experimental stuff on what we're calling a least cost uh, index. And that is trying to put together a basic basket of 30 things that people would uh, commonly buy um, from lower priced supermarkets to uh, you know, feed the family for a week, as it were. And even there, average out over 30 goods, you don't see something that's massively different from the national average, which is quite surprising. But what you do see is very wide variance in different things. So you know, pasta up by 50%, potatoes fallen by 19%. Um, over the past year. So a lot of differences in uh, prices. So it has to be very personalised, actually, yeah. to get these big differences that you, you kind of think of when you think about how the cost of living and inflation is impacting on people. Yeah, well, that was really good. That was a really good um, output reminding everyone that in some parts, we've all focused on energy and everyone pay, Everyone basically uses, almost everybody uses energy in the heating their homes. Yes, but the, the food yeah, split was yeah. very, it really yeah. matters what your basic diet is. If you like, if you're potato fiend, you're basically laughing. Uh, but if you're, and also you've got slightly weird taste, but that's fine. But like, but the pasta thing is like if spaghetti bolognese is your thing. You're in big trouble. Indeed. It's not been a good. Um, no, it's not been no. a good uh, year. The um, housing. So when you've done your neighbourhood level stuff, how much can you get into housing costs? Um, well, housing costs is as as uh, as you said. I mean, it's it's a bit of a 
a tricky one. I mean, in most most cases, we we tend to use average house prices uh, as housing costs, uh, as a proxy for housing costs uh, when you are doing any sort of when we are doing sort of neighborhood uh, sort of analysis. And if you, I think, in terms of findings and that sort of thing, it's pretty much similar to what Charlie did say, and that is. If you take into account average house prices and housing costs in some of the affluent areas and compared to what you would get for similar accommodation sort of some of the deprived areas, then it's sort of they are paying more for it, uh, whilst others are paying less for it. So it's sort of um, adjusted and within area, you mean yeah. Yeah. Between oh. areas. So so if it is a place like London, right, right house prices are super high in London compared to a place like Sheffield yeah. where they are low. So if you are just for it, yeah. then it sort of bridges. So this is Chris Giles's favorite yeah, so Chris Giles's favourite fact which London is below average income these days once you take housing costs into account. Exactly. Uh, that's that's one of the issues here. I think and back to what you were saying about um adjusting for cost of living and prices and everything else. I mean, I think the most significant cost in every household is really your housing, right? Uh, food, um, transportation co transportation costs is also a big one, yeah. depending on how you look at it. But when it comes to food and other stuff, I think they turn off, there are not huge gaps between them. Between what areas? Uh, between areas. In terms of food, they are much smaller than housing costs. Yep. So I think housing costs and transportation costs is probably the biggest ones. But yeah, our, our view has been when we've wrestled with this question before, as we await the very detailed rents data, which Sam is going to go magically magic up out of the ODS, uh, using house prices as a proxy for relative housing costs yeah. in a snapshot way makes sense because you can they in general will relate to rent levels. Uh, even in relative terms, even if not in absolute terms, because you can f forget the interest rate part of the house price yeah. picture and just focus on the relative housing costs areas. I think that's right. In previous work we did, it basically showed exactly what you're saying, which is as those gaps have stretched, what's happened is um, that people moving around the country have increasingly are more likely to move from high housing cost to lower housing cost areas. If you like map everybody <laughs> into buckets of like, when you move, did you go higher to lower, lower to higher, or about the same? Over the last 20 years, we, people are increasingly trading down between uh, housing cost areas, which has this rather large economic implications in terms of whether people can take up opportunities right around the country. Right, let's touch on um, benefits, Charlie. So you skipped over, there's a few questions on this uh, we've had coming in, but specifically on, so we can't see everything, right? Um, but we did see, and people I think generally think benefits just go to poorer places, right? That isn't obviously that is not what we see when we look within the. Well, that that, that is true, but like there is, I think uh, there's, I can't quite remember. I think it's four local authorities in the top income decile where there's a higher share uh, receiving uh, working tax credits or universal credit than in the bottom decile, which is like really striking, and that basically reflects the fact that the universal the switch to universal credit has been more generous relatively to high housing cost areas. So this is like parts of London, really high housing costs, universal credit has been relatively more generous. So you can still see in this top income decile, there's a high share of households receiving universal credit or working tax credit, which like seems slightly bonkers, but uh, that's the explanation. Yeah. Although sitting behind that is the point you raised earlier, which is richer areas, unless you build a lot of houses as they become richer, 
the housing costs rise as people that own the land snaffle a lot of the rents yeah. that come from that productivity, pushing up house prices. And then when you think about within area, so an area gets richer, unless you do something quite extreme on housing, you almost certainly get lower earners in those places losing out because they become because they because they have to deal with higher housing costs and then either you pick up the tab via the housing benefit bill or universal credit as charlie's saying or people just get poorer broadly yeah is that what you're yeah that's certainly i mean it goes back to the point where i was talking about hidden deprivation isn't yeah. it i mean um in almost every local authority whether it's class as um Averagely, we, we tend to sometimes bog down this issue of average income in this area, average income in this Average income could be relatively high, but there are still people in there yeah. who are actually more deprived than what you might probably expect. In terms of, if you put in, term, in terms of their income and their expenditure, if you put it all together, you net it off. Yep. You may be somewhere in Liverpool, which one, and also in Liverpool, a very poor one, and you may be able to save I don't know, 100 pounds, someone might be living in Kansas City, so you may not be able to save anything at all when, when you net all of these things. Yeah. So it's not surprising to see that there are people in a lot of the benefits are going to local authority areas, which you would have otherwise thought they shouldn't really be getting any. But there are people in those areas yeah. uh, who are uh, pretty much struggling. And when you are struggling in, in an area like that, it tends to be more uh, severe, probably. Um, one of the things that I think we think about in this country when we're talking about, we see more, is about the clustering of deprivation and uh, low-income houses. Of course, in some parts of the north, you get a whole area or a suburb. Most people there are poor, and it becomes a lot more visible yeah. compared to other areas where... Uh, the deprivation or the poverty is sort of hidden Spot right uh, in, in some places and they are not as visible as. That is, def that is definitely um, true. Let's go up another poll and move us into the world of what should anyone <coughs> do about any of these gaps. So life's unfair. So here's what is the most important policy area for policymakers to focus? Remember, this is about income gaps. Okay, so we're, what would help on income gaps? Okay, is it keep doing what we're doing on the minimum wage? Right, that's closing the earnings gaps. Is it we've got to keep getting employment up? And as Sam mentioned, that's gone actually backwards in the last, uh, since the pandemic, in a way that probably most of us didn't anticipate. And the UK is unusual, actually, in having gone backwards on uh, employment. So should we keep focusing on that? Is it tax? And we've obviously shown you some of the reasons why you might focus on tax, given the big increases in income at the top being driven by investment and things. Is it on benefit levels, where Charlie's just mentioned, actually, I think entirely unintentionally, the move to universal credit relative to the previous benefit system has actually done the opposite of levelling up, is much more generous because we've been moving to a lower taper rate. A lower taper rate within the benefit system was the main objective, right? And the side effect of that, although not the intention, is to benefit people with areas with high housing costs, which basically means London and the South East relative to the Midlands and the North of England. Is it, look, stop fiddling with all these like micro bits of economic policy and instead focus on getting good local economic leadership and that in the end requires devolution? Uh, or is it something else entirely? So have a ponder. Again, obviously, you probably want to think about all these things, but what's the most important one as far as you're, um, as far as you're concerned? Uh, Charlie, pensions. What did our work show on pensions income? I liked your stat on... So people, I think probably we do think usually about incomes coming from the labour market. That is how probably our path of least resistance for keeping our thought pattern simple. 
What was your Norfolk fact on percentage of Norfolk money that comes from the labour market? So we've done some previous work which shows that the country is growing apart by average age. So the oldest parts of the country at the turn of the century have either will have aged fastest and the younger parts have either, either aged slowest or some have actually gotten younger. And that's kind of like student-y parts of the country. Um, and so if we think about this in terms of uh, pensionable income, well, well, sorry, let me, think, let me reverse that. If we think about this in terms of income from wages and salaries and we plot the 10 youngest areas and the 10 oldest areas, North Norfolk, which is the oldest uh, part of the country when you uh, use median age, only gets about 53% of its pre-tax income from wages and salaries, which basically suggests it's getting it's half. Which is just, and you know, if you compare that to somewhere like Southwark, uh, with a very young population, it gets about three quarters uh, of, of income from pre-tax income from uh, wages and salaries, which basically suggests that other sources of income in places like North Norfolk are just becoming way, way more. Well, they already are more important, and that would be like pensions, uh, investment income, probably as well to a sort of lesser extent. One one important lesson from that is you definitely always want to look at income and productivity. So some people, there's a big row in the literature, I know you've all got more lives than this, about whether you should just focus on what's happening on output, right, productivity, or whether you should focus on what we can see is happening to households and their actual income levels. And people think one or the other is important, but you should definitely look at both. Because if you just look at productivity, you won't get at any of this stuff. You'll think that some really old places are really poor because there's no productivity and no output going on. But some of those places are actually pretty well off. And that's particularly as we go forward and think about like the local economic strategy for pretty place may well involve getting some better off older people to live there and to drive like higher incomes for other people living in the area. But it won't be, but if you just look at the productivity data, you won't see that um, at all. So I think we think you should look at both of those. Right, let's bring out the results of the uh, survey and see what you all thought was the most important. Here we go. What did you reckon? What do you want us to work on? All oh, right, you, you, all, you all want to whack up some taxes. Okay, well, you know, you probably do need to do a bit of that. One, th one of my favourite charts that we'll never talk about, I've got a lot of favourite charts, but one of them is on... So we all... In the popular debate, you get people talking about different um, tax rates for different kinds of income, yeah? So everyone's like, it's really unfair that people getting capital gains pay a lower tax rate than people who are earning their, income, uh, earning their wages. That is definitely true. That is a problem. But we never focus on... If you can get your income in lots of different ways, you get a separate allowance for each bit of your... But you get a tax-free allowance for each of them. So if you can get dividends, capital gains, savings income, wages, uh, maybe you rent out a room in your house, you can probably get like over 20 grand of income tax-free, totally legally, right? The, um, where someone who only earns money can get half that. Okay, it makes no sense at all. So I put that on the list. The, um, uh, Charlie, on terms of policy, so we obviously we move, we move from this phase of the work into next year looking at what the policy... Uh, answers are what have you from having done this research over the past year what have you kind of concluded we should spend the time looking at well we've, so the, one of the charts I presented was the absolute contribution to uh, spatial income inequality from all of well yeah I'm sort of variation of lots of these different income sources and the biggest thing is uh, wages and salaries so that's probably the thing you know that we can leverage the most to change spatial income gaps uh, and that would be, you know, continuation of um, fast-rising employment in traditionally low employment areas, continuation of the national uh, minimum wage of success. That sounds like a bit of a boring answer because it's just more of the same. I guess the, the thing that we have shown um, is that 
there is this big change which is coming from the top end of the income distribution. So that probably feels like a sort of a more newish area that we could use to tackle uh, regional disparities. Sam, in terms of, um, so obviously the ONS is totally independent from the policy chosen by politicians and it's providing the information that helps us decide those things, but on, in terms of doing a good job of using the great data you're working to improve, to inform policy, is there any, are there good and bad lessons for how we've tried that in the past? I mean, you know, I mean, I remember working with the Treasury a long time ago, people did care about reducing income gaps and point of view gaps around the country then. The, um, what are our lessons from like the last... 30 years of trying this as to how we use that data better to inform policy. Yeah, so I think, I mean, I mean, my comment on that, and it, interesting, you, you, you may feel the same having sort of worked in policy over, over the same, many of the same sort of years and new strategies in this space. Um, you know, I think you can think of the levelling up strategy as a new generation of productivity strategy in some ways. But yep. of course, as you've, as you've have highlighted, it's got much more of a place-based kind of uh, approach to it and I think that is about recognizing that places are different and policy solutions might be different in those areas and indeed the leadership of that area um, is quite kind of crucial uh, to its success so I think you know one debate we had a lot when we were um, thinking about the data to underpin uh, the leveling up uh, piece because we are in kind of in the room as the ONS um, with analysts right from across uh, government and policy departments was really the relative the relative importance of place over individual characteristics and I think how those two things interact over decades as well is is really um, important here so in some sense coming back to where is the government putting its money and um, how benefits are distributed you know they're, 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 we're trying to do two different things here in a sense you wouldn't put a pile all your money into place-based uh, sort of redistribution. A lot of it is inevitably going to be about individual uh, kind of circumstances as well. So I think that that look at the cycles over time yep. um, is is really key to shifting us from um, you know uh, sort of strategies of the past to making this leveling up one um, uh, more successful yep. uh, this time around. And we have got the we've got the leveling up council and other things, haven't we? That are meant to be all advisory board as well. Indeed. Hopefully, pouring over this data. So, why don't you take this really unfairly difficult question, uh, um, Elvis? So, uh, oh, it's not coming up there. So, I'll read it out. Is there any good international evidence that shows other developed countries, so like similar-ish countries, let's focus on, because in the end you, you are the country you are rather than imagining you're some other one, they, um, that have meaningfully reduced the level of spatial inequality or just have lower levels maybe? The ones that you were like, you always think, why don't we do a bit more like that? Um, no, nothing, nothing comes to mind specifically, uh, no country comes to mind specifically at the moment as to uh, which countries have done well and that sort of thing. I mean, in most cases, it tends to boil down to the case of countries with, it's all boils down to capitalism, isn't it? Countries with um, smaller gaps tend to have some sort of a socialist agenda where things are tightly regulated. Um, but if you, in a free market capitalist economy like ours, yeah. it becomes very difficult to sort of control uh, where the money goes and who gets more because uh, labor basically determine its wages. Yeah. So it becomes relatively difficult uh, to do that. The, the popular uh, example, without going for full on socialism, <clears throat> um, is 
Germany's done a bit better within regions, although not obviously in every sense. Some cities have been depopulating in the east of the country for some time. And the US has has more rich places than even if you it's obviously huge, right? So yeah. but even within like similar geographies has more rich places. So other places have done have different outcomes. Yeah, I mean, US is probably worse than we have here, isn't it, when it comes to income disparity? Uh, it's uh, at the household level between people, between but actually people, spread yeah, across places. Spread. Okay, uh, so that, that's one of the things. And I think in terms of policy direction, we are probably looking at a combination of people and places, because you can pump money into places all you want. Evidence shows that uh, affluent people or richer households take uh, benefit more from opportunities within their special opportunity structure yep. than uh, poorer households. So whilst you sort of improve the space or the opportunity structure around individuals, you need to also empower people from poorer households to be able to take advantage of those opportunities. Yep. So we sort of need a bit of vote. Yep. We're going to be coming back to that on, on Thursday definitely about how do you like what's a plausible way in which areas with lower productivity could increase their productivity and then who would benefit from that if you succeeded because it's really exactly. important yeah. getting the thing you want brings with it lots of benefits but also brings with it other problems and it, and it's very very yeah. there's a who would benefit you need to think really hard about um about that over uh time someone has asked a question on specifically on uh tax here you go would it make any difference how does taxation policy uh, impact on self-employment and, and extreme wealth at the top end over time? The big question. Let's not go into all the weeds of that, but all I would say is taking lots of our work over the past few years together, the growth in some of the, that income, particularly self-employment, is definitely driven by the way in which we've chosen to tax it. So if you tell people you're going to get a lower tax rate if you are a consultant rather than an employee, which is why IR35 is, needs to exist, then people will choose to do that. There, and the gaps are now very large. Um, and I think that we should be, we need to think, if I compare back to how much I worried we were about that in the 2000s, we should be more worried now. The evidence is pretty strong that we are basically creating some of these gaps for ourselves and the rich are much more likely to be able to choose how they take their income. And then we end up with charts going up like this, partly, not just, that's not the only reason, but partly as a result on that. Right, let's um, let's have closing thoughts. So we've covered a lot about the data. We've covered a lot about some of the policy, although there's lots more to do. As I say, come back on Thursday for more uh, on that. But just give us your reflections on what does 20 years of looking at data over 20 years of this leave you thinking should be our priority, whether it's on the data or the policy side uh, going forward. Charlie, do you want to go first? Um, I'm just going to start with one of the headline findings is the, the persistence point which I think someone, one of the questions raised is like, should we actually care if it's just like London and the rich that are sort of running away with it? But if you look at the relative rankings of local authority income over time, it's not just about London. There are these sort of lots of former industrial areas that now have below average uh, income and they didn't 20, 20 years ago. So there is, it's, it's not just about London and South East and we should, uh, can care, we should care about persistence over time, even if that means not much change. Right. That's excellent. As you, as you say, and the public does care, which is yeah. why they're saying in surveys, and that's why our politics is focusing on it, because in the end, we're in a democracy. Sam, what do you reckon? Well, you know, all I can say, I think, is that, the, you know, levelling up, and important to say levelling up rather than just levelling, yep. I think, uh, uh, given the sort of debate that's we're That's definitely having, our strong preference. Being, being the debate we're having at the moment. I mean, I do think, um, you know, it is, it is a different approach. 
um, with you know, much more of a place-based focus, but not forgetting the individual circumstances point. I think it does bring together um, you know, aspects of, of poverty, uh, you know, relative and material with productivity and industry structure. So, I mean, it is an attempt to look at this sort of whole picture. We're really focused on getting a great set of metrics so as we can, we can um, have the evidence of how, how well it's doing and, and, and course adjust if, if necessary. Great. Well, we should definitely keep doing that. We promise to use it as and when you've solved all the, the, the traumas. Oh, it's last word to you. Yeah, um, I think we need to be a bit of both. We, we need the data, refined data set to be able to uh, sort of do the much detailed analysis that will actually inform policy directions and how we do things. So I'm, I'm very pleased that ONS is uh, looking into some of these things and improving uh, data sets. Uh, but then again, uh, in terms of policy direction, uh, we need to be focusing on, uh, in this renewed interest of leveling up, we should be also be looking at uh, how we level within places and um, how we sort of improve uh, what, what I, uh, social um, social mobility, right? Because that's the that's the main thing in the interim. Yes, we'll be focusing on improving money and improving income in people's pockets and level of employment. But social mobility is one of the important things here. And that's one of the things that is going to bridge the gap. Uh, because we could put in the resources as we want. It's always going to go like that until we get some sort of mobility where people are actually rising up from poverty and becoming middle class and affluent themselves. Very good. Okay, look, thank you very much indeed, Lewis. And can we um, all thank our panel for their thoughts today? And thank you all for coming. The, um, obviously, at one level, Charlie's like first charts are kind of saying at a headline level, what you haven't seen is massive change over time. Our strong argument is that should neither be a case for you going to sleep because you're bored or deciding that everything is hunky-dory. The whole point is the level is high and it hasn't changed much over time and that it's really important to look under the bonnet of that static level over time because there is change happening within that. Some policy areas have worked, the labour market broadly, but others have definitely seen new problems emerging and it's really important we focus on those. So don't go to sleep just because a chart is flat, everyone. Have a good day. See you at the Resolution Foundation and LSE event on Thursday to talk about productivity. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.